0: Hey, hey, welcome back to Horns Up. Peter's joining in from Bombay, from his home. He's locked down, so am I. And we also have Martin Popoff with us, all the way from Canada. Are you locked
1: down too at home, Martin? Pretty much. I think uh, the whole country's got about the same rules going on. I mean, we can all still go out and stuff and shop and everything, but uh, the parks are closed only for... You can walk through parks but you can't you know play play soccer or tennis or anything in parks, and uh, and most businesses are closed down too.
0: Mm, that's still better than what we're uh, going through <laughs> here
1: in <laughs> Bombay. Oh yeah huh. you got a, you got a more strict than that, eh?
0: Yeah, anyways, uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's not the reason uh, Martin's joining us on this episode today. It's because of what happened on April 14th, 1980, almost 40 years back. And that's because on that day, uh, the world saw two new records, uh, obviously on April 14, 1980, one of which was Judas Priest's British Steel, and the other one was Iron Maiden's debut, the self-titled Iron Maiden. And those two albums are legendary albums, now considered legendary. And Martin is here with us to kind of help us understand that legacy and just take us through the story of those two albums itself. Are you excited, Martin? Absolutely. Let's do
1: it. These are two records near and dear to my heart. So glad to talk about them.
2: Lovely. So, you know, let's begin. Uh, Help us just kind of understand where rock and roll or metal had kind of reached in both UK and US in 1980s. So this could give us some context as to the times that these albums were recorded in.
1: Okay so so basically there was there was a big um you know flood of cool original heavy metal in the early 70s the US kind of picked up in the late 70s but by 78 79 with punk coming in and new wave there was a lot of um Bands kind of falling off the charts. Deep Purple had broken up. Aerosmith is going through troubles. Ted Nugent is having a divorce. Kiss is doing like, uh, you know, The Elder and Unmasked and stuff like that. Blue Esther Cult's getting a little poppy. There's really not much heavy metal around. Led Zeppelin makes a famously, very notoriously keyboardy album. Um, You know, uh, John Bonham dies. uh, Bon Bon Scott dies. uh, But basically, so right at the end of the 70s, that there's there's um there's kind of like a um a, an obliteration of all things heavy uh you know that might be an exaggeration there's a couple little things going on there's van halen uh is a big deal uh 1978 uh but there's a few other small little bands but you flip into 1980 and you and around february you start to get this uh this groundswell of something called the new wave of british heavy metal right so you've got You've got this tour going on, this Metal for Mothers tour going on, with um, with all these new exciting baby bands that are way heavier than anything that had had come before. You've got you've got Saxon and Motorhead. So Motorhead was something that started in the late '70s as well, but you've got Saxon, Iron Maiden, uh, Angel Witch. Uh, and you've got these two samplers that come out through EMI, Metal from Others later on, Metal from Others too. But the first one has Angel Witch and Iron Maiden on it. And so Iron Maiden is, uh, is just starting up. They had their Soundhouse tapes. I think they got a single by now. I'm not sure. I think there's a single in between uh, Soundhouse tapes and, uh, and the debut album. Anyways, but there definitely is this pronounced thing happening. Um, in May, it gets called. The new wave of British heavy metal through a through a subheading in Sounds magazine uh, on an article in there, but definitely, definitely, there is uh, there is a uh, a steady stream of new very heavy product starting to come out. Essentially, the start of 1980, and uh, and this is the first big pronounced wave. Of heavy metal, uh, with a couple more to come in later, you know, in later sort of uh, five-year cycles, I suppose. Um, but yeah, this was a big, big deal, and you know, if you were a young metalhead that came up in the '70s and you walked into a, a store, uh, you know, that had imports, say, where I was in in um, in Canada, buying in Spokane, Washington. Uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. Finally, you had all this stuff that looked heavy, was promising to be heavy, and it was going to be heavy, and that and that didn't happen in the seventies.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So let's begin with Judas Priest's British Steel. Um, now, this is the sixth Judas Priest album, and the band had been active for almost a decade. Their first album, Rockerola, was already six years old by this point. Could you help us uh, sum up Judas Priest's beginnings and their journey through the 70s?
1: Yeah, so Judas Priest is one of these bands. I recently did an episode of my podcast, History in Five Songs, um, Uh where, where we did Second Wave, second wave British metal and second wave American metal, where I summed up the late seventies and Judas priest are, are one of the key bands in the British one. We had, I think UFO, thin Lizzy, rainbow, Judas priest, somebody else. Oh, I had scorpions in there. We called it European, not British. Uh, so there are these, there are these new bands, but not very many of them. And it's not really a movement that start in the, in the late seventies. So Judas priest, the big deal was their second album, 1976, sad wings of destiny. Uh-huh. First, Huge improvement in in the quality of heavy metal, probably since all the way back to Deep Purple in Rock and Black Sabbath, say, Master of Reality, that kind of thing, right? So Judas Priest, out of all those bands in the 70s, out of all the bands American or European, they were the most scientific and cerebral and chopsy and uh, and fearless and super, super creative through, through the likes of Sad Wings, Sin After Sin 77. Um, in Class, 78, uh, uh, Hellbent for Leather while well, Killing Machine, uh, late 78, and that came out as Hellbent for Leather in mm-hmm. America yeah. in 79. You have this great live album Unleashed in the East. So they, they are building up and and they are the, you know, hands down the most formidable, the most professional, the most interesting, intricate, flashy, everything you want heavy metal band of the late 70s so they arrive in in 1980 and uh and things change we'll we'll get to that but i i think the um basically uh the golden period i think creatively for the band uh is is essentially 76 through 79
2: okay so what do you think is the band's intention for the album before they entered the studio
1: okay so at this point, um, they make a big change. Uh, they they essentially, they, they haven't lost their label deal, but they're probably in a little bit of, uh, of danger of that happening. The only thing keeping them alive is, tr- is true, pure creativity. I mean, there is a big buzz about Judas Priest simply because how creative they are, but they're still a pretty underground band. 1980 comes along. They go through this period of changing drummers all the time. Uh, they haven't had much luck with their drum situation. They have a studio drummer in 77. They do have Les Binks, who is who is solidly in there for two studio albums and a live album. But then they have a falling out with Les pretty much about money. Um, and so they, they have a new drummer in Dave Holland from Trapeze. And he's a very simple, straightforward, four-on-the-floor drummer. Or at least that's what they want him to do. And that's what their new producer, Tom Allen, wants them to do as well. Tom wants them to really strip back. Dave fits that fits that that mandate. The band is open minded because essentially, as I go through in my Judas Priest books, um, the current the current ones out that are that are you know the ones that exist are Decade of Domination, Judas Priest in the seventies, uh, uh, or no, that goes up to eighty four because uh, I call the decade seventy four to eighty four, and then I have one called Turbo Till Now, which covers mm-hmm. the later years. But in that book, I mean, basically uh, KK, I believe kind of talks about this idea. He's pretty honest about, hey, we had to eat, we were starving, you know, things weren't working out. Um, you know, there is there is this sort of talk that Rob Halford was uh, uh, influenced a little bit by ACDC, but the idea is, hey, we need a hit, essentially. Um, there was no bones about it. They need, They needed some accessible music. So, Their intention going into the studio was to do a much more stripped down, much more accessible, uh, not so cerebral, not so note dense album. And frankly, songs that, you know, when you go see ACDC, the idea is um, these songs come across so well live because there's not so much window dressing on them. There's not, you know, through a muddy hockey barn mix you know, through, through brutal loud sound that you get in concerts. That's a whole nother thing that annoys me. I don't know why the sound is so bad at concerts 50 years later. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, songs like that, you know, Dave, Dave Mustaine talks to me about this as well. We, we've had this discussion, how, you know, double bass drums, wall of, wall of, uh, you know, wall of drums sound with a lot of, uh, you know, intricate riffs doesn't come up, come off well. So ACDC does, uh, but Judas Priest says, you know, we're kind of having the same problem. Essentially, we want songs to sound great live, sound great on the lit or on the radio. We can get some hits with them. We can get some girls coming to our co- our concerts instead of just these uh, these you know sullen teenage headbanging guys. And um and that's kind of what what was going on going into the record.
0: Uh yes, as you mentioned, producer Tom Allen had uh, stepped in. He was the one who had engineered Black Sabbath's first three albums, and British Steel, as such. Uh, The legend says that the album was recorded over 28 days and apparently that the band had only written around 40 percent of the songs. Or if you see the CD liner notes, they say that around five songs or material worth around five songs were written before entering the studio. That's attributed to a quote by Glenn Tipton. But apparently the bulk of the material comes from Tipton, Downing and Halford sitting around and writing together for the very first time uh have you heard of any stories of these recording sessions as such
1: not particularly i mean they were done at ringo Starr's studio startling studios i mean there are the uh the usual stories you hear about how you know they had to pull out the cutlery tray to make the uh you know the metal god sound so they're they're you know, smashing milk bottles and stuff like this. So there are these stories of of have coming up with those sorts of sounds. Um, you know, the Def Leppard album. I I um I can't recall. Is the Def Leppard right after British Steel or before British Steel in terms of the recording? Anyways, Tom album alum is the producer of the Def Leppard album as well, and he does kind of a similar job with them. But Def Leppard, oddly, with On Through the Night, is actually a more complicated band than Judas Priest is on British Steel. So. So, yeah, they are coming up with this record that is is very commercial. And I remember, you know, I remember as a young metalhead being quite ticked off with the band. We we, we looked at this record and thought they are completely dumbing down on this album. <laughs> um, you know, the advanced single was Living After Midnight, and we were shocked at that song. Um, that is, you know, to me, British Steel is the band's Kiss album. They essentially... Um, you know, absorbed a lot of the philosophy of Kiss, I think, on this record. But Living After Midnight especially. I mean, that song is so, you know, with the with the dependable Louie Louie type chords that open the song. You know, it gets heavier for the riff, but the chorus is so just rootsy, rock and roll poppy. It's just like nothing you would hear out of Priest before. Because Priest was such a, uh, you know, European, classical-based, progressive metal band. Serious band, Right. You know these kind of religious yeah. lyrics, tim- timeless lyrics, right? Um, you know that that aren't aren't linked to any sort of time. Well, now they're just writing this party rock stuff. And uh, so, as an advanced single, you know, granted, it turned out to be the poppiest song probably on the album, maybe tied with "You Don't Have to Be Old to Be Wise." But it came out as a single, I recall, uh, before the album, and we were just so concerned that basically Priest had had given up, had sold out completely. Which they kind of did, um, but the other cool thing about the record is, uh, in its heaviest songs, uh, the likes of "Grinder" and "Metal Gods." Uh, you know, those were two songs that were written so gorgeously, and they were super heavy. That they were they were like the the um, parts of this new direction that we liked, actually. Um, so so those were two songs that that were like instantly lovable and super heavy, and then the other the other side of it. Uh, that we weren't so pleased about is the fast songs on it that were supposed to be really cool and heavy, like an Exciter or a Hellbent for Leather in Rapid Fire and Steeler. I recall uh, and still to this day feel that the riffs are just too simple, too lazy, too uninspired, and they're just not as super cool as uh, as I wished those would have been. So, so to me, the shining the shining glory part of the album really is those those really well-written hooky but still super heavy songs, Grindr and Metal Gods, which incidentally, you know, when I heard the advanced single off of Metallica's Black album, Enter Sandman, I thought exactly the same thing. It's like this is to me, that's the best song on the on the black album. And to me, it felt like a super heavy song, but it was also at the same time a super commercial song. So that was a neat thing about uh that was that was one of the Cool improvements, I thought, on British Steel over the old stuff, but the rest of it was definitely a deevolution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so you know,
2: you you talked about uh, living after midnight. Uh, so I've read this story where the title for the album uh, for the track came from Rob Halford berating Glenn Tipton, who is below his bedroom playing with an axe in the middle of the night, and a quote that has been attributed there, which is again PG rated, saying. What are you doing down there? Bloody living after midnight. Have you heard any other such stories about, you know, the song titles from the album? Oh,
1: boy. Oh, no. Let me go through them in my head. Uh, Boy, there's the rages on there. The rages are pretty cool on rapid fire. You know, that's the thing. You look at it, and the lyrics are just not great. And so even if there were any stories I could recall, they wouldn't be great stories. I mean, this is the start of them. This is the start of them kind of being almost too self-aware of uh, of the fact that they are, you know, the heavy metal champions, right? It's something that came yeah. up with uh, Take On The World and Hellbent For Leather and the live album. So they were, and and you know, the new look in, in all the leather and studs, they named this album British Steel. Um, you know named for identifying just the same way metallica is such a great name for saying we are the you know the gold standard in metal so british steel they're kind of saying you know 3 years before metallica came out we're the gold standard in this new metal movement so i think that's kind of a neat thing but but yeah i mean it's an interesting question because again the lyrics are simply Uh, they're they're becoming a a bit of a comic book band they're dumbing it down they're they're like saying we're not going to be a progressive metal band we're not going to be as creative as queen we're going to be um we're we're gonna we're gonna try to fit into this like i say this kiss realm this ted nugent realm um not even as complicated as aerosmith or van halen realm right um so so they're so they're becoming a little bit Annoying in that respect, uh, writing these songs about about being heavy metal. It's almost cooler when you just are heavy metal and you don't and you don't have to brag about it. And soon as you start talking about it, you've kind of uh, as that expression goes, jumped the shark a little bit. So so it's almost like too self-aware. And and I draw and I draw a parallel to how Black Sabbath were this creative, artistic, daring band in the Aussie years, and when they put out Heaven and Hell, they're a little bit too aware of their legend. You know, Ronnie, Ronnie's writing these spooky songs, and every song is kind of like right up there on the surface. They, they've they lost that enigmatic quality from the Geezer Butler lyrics, and they're just like, hey, we know what we are, we're doing this, and Judas Priest is kind of doing the same thing.
0: You know, you you talk about that dumbing down, but I would argue that uh, that that dumping down kind of helps them get really super, super, super big. I mean, take for example, Breaking the Law, which is perhaps one of the most easiest songs to, uh, that Priest has ever released, but is today considered a legendary song itself. What do you make of that track?
1: Yes, that that's a really well-written song and that's the thing. I mean, even these dumbed-down quote unquote songs are well-written songs. The idea is to construct a song that 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 fits in that sort of platonic ideal of objectively speaking, it's a well-written song. And a well-written song can be across any genre. You know, you've heard that story about when when rock stars say, "You know, it was such a good song. You could sit down with an acoustic guitar and play it and it's still a great song, right?" So so that's a thing yep. you hear a lot and breaking the laws of perfect song like that it's a well-written song and to me that song is not as poppy as living after midnight or you don't have to be old to be wise when we were kids we listened to that and thought you know it's a pretty heavy song this is pretty cool um but yes this is a record that helped them be big but the other thing that helped them be big is that uh, through no through no uh you know merit of their own it just happened to be tossed in to a metal world at exactly the right time. You know, early 1980 is the perfect time to wade in as just like Motorhead and Priest are the two bands that wade in to this new wave of British heavy metal thing as elders. And uh, and it's perfect timing, just like Black Sabbath had perfect timing with this switch with Ronnie. You know, everybody, all eyes are on all things heavy metal. So half of Priest doing great at this time is just it's a beautiful golden era and explosion era for heavy metal and half of it is that it's a more accessible album. Since you're talking
2: about accessibility, same thing with tracks like you know, United, you have that you know, chorus, the hooky part, uh, Grinder, both those tracks, uh, what are your thoughts on them?
1: Yeah, so so grinder again, I think is just an exquisitely super heavy sounding song. Um, that one really has that ACDC quality of just being simple uh, with a with a big simple uh, four on the floor beat. not technically four on the floor. four on the floor means, bass drum on one two three and four uh-huh. so it's that big thumping thing right but it's got the acdc beat which is more like uh bass drum on one snare on two bass drum on three snare on four so it's got that kind of four on the floor this celebrated celebrated acdc phil rudd beat to it, right um so that is a great heavy song uh, i don't consider it to be poppy at all united on the other hand you're right it has a very poppy chorus this melodic kind of like Uh, annoying to the ear, like it's an earworm hooky, you know, as they say, chorus that gets in your ear, but it's that simple atmospheric thing. So, so again, you know, if you're a big Judas Priest fan, it's just take on the world all over again. So it's the second time doing it. They do it again later with heavy duty, right? So that's annoying in itself. It's just like, hey, let's do this again. Um, But, and, and it's slow and it's boring. So, so to me, that is a little bit of a throwaway track. I'm I'm not crazy about it. But uh, but Grinder <laughs> is, is pretty much my favorite track on the whole album.
0: Okay. Uh, wh- what do you think about the Rage? Personally, I really love it. And I guess it's also because it's so different from the rest of the entire album. Was this the experimentation track?
1: Yeah, so the Rage is a really cool track. It's atmosphere. It's, it's got this kind of melancholic melody to it it's so funky it's very unlike priest yeah well okay it it has that funky little celebrated r b part but once it once it kicks in i don't think it's funky at that point it's pretty driving it's almost like black sabbath like it's slow and trudgy yeah yeah um but it uh you know it it is it is different and it's cool that there is this different kind of song because i always pair up grinder metal gods fit together for me Uh, You don't have to be old to be wise and living after midnight and a little bit, um, breaking the law fit together for me. United fits with take on the world. Uh, Steeler and rapid fire are the two kind of dull, fast ones. You know, you never say dull and fast with priest previous to this in the same (laughs) sentence, uh, but it is here. Um, but yeah, the rage is a really, really kind of a cool one on there. But like I say, it does fit the mandate, um, to me, even though it is really cool, uh, still, uh, you know, my my top 20 Priest songs pretty much still come from the previous era. So I could find slower songs mm-hmm. on previous albums that I think still kill the rage. Uh, but the rage is a pretty cool tune.
2: What would you say British Steel did for Judas Priest in both the UK as well as the U.S.?
1: well interestingly i mean all their albums had pretty wide distribution already in the uk and the u.s so it's not that it's the first one that came out in the u.s um but uh i think i think based on this excitement around metal um like i say it's it's partly priest's credit and it's partly good timing um but yeah it it on un, it undoubtedly made them huge um you know, essentially uh, the other thing that helps them at this point is this unified image. You know, gone are the satins and the hats and the, you know, the the, the multicolored just regular clothes, but a little upscale clothes for this new look. So they are they are almost like a costumed band. They're almost like you know, they're 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 almost like KISS in a way. They're they're not as crazy as KISS in terms of the costuming, but they are costumed somewhat mm-hmm. like KISS. They have this cool, unified look. So so they're they look great live. They're out there playing live. They're they're very, very energetic in their work schedule. They're touring Europe, UK, they're touring the States. Um, so they have this great period. And let's not forget, I mean, the next album um, well, okay. Well, let's not get into it. But I mean, they have another album in '81. It's a yep. little bit of a of a down thing, and then '82 they're kind of back on track. So, so '82 they have an even bigger bigger thing going with "Screaming for Vengeance," and then and then the next album does well, and then Turbo even does well. You know, an, another experiment. But they're basically off to the races with this album, and uh, and having a pretty good career. They don't explode. They're not a massive band like Back in Black. But again, Back in Black. Uh, helps priest uh iron maiden which we're going to talk about helps priest so so this excitement scorpion's doing well at this time helps priest black sabbath all the talk about the new lineup helps priest so they're all you know ozzy coming out as a solo artist is a big deal so there's a lot of heavy metal stories at the time and just heavy metal is in the good graces of the music industry in general
0: Mm, All right. So let's uh, wrap British Steel up by analyzing this cool fact. Well, actually, you could call it an opinion, which is that in 2017, British Steel is ranked third on Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest metal albums of all time.
1: Is that an apt legacy as such for this album? Yeah, it's a pretty good legacy. I mean, uh, you know, it's it is a little annoying, like I say, because the true deep, pure priest metalhead from the seventies, um, you know, pretty much like, likes likes uh, you know likes the seventies material better than the eighties material. So it, yeah, you know, it's it's a little crazy to to say it's uh, you say Rolling Stone ranked it the third best heavy metal album of all time. Yep, yeah, it did. Yeah, that's that's a little insane. I I don't I don't believe it should be, you know, nearly celebrated that much. I mean, they're celebrating them because Judas Priest really. They're almost like picking something to represent the fact that Judas Priest is probably the most pure, biggest, most likely, most most uh, you know, in in every trope of the word, in every sort of cliche. They are the heavy metal band of all time. So they're they're probably almost putting it in there as a symbolic, you know, you can't you can't rank Judas Priest themselves much lower than third. So we got to <laughs> stick an album in there. So I mean, you could have picked that, you know, a super deep heavy metal fan might pick Sad Wings of Destiny as as the album that should be in that slot. Other fans might pick Screaming for Vengeance as the record that could have been in that slot. But I think you know, frankly, I think Judas Priest, <laughs> it's fine to put them as a band, as the third greatest heavy metal band of all time. Uh, I would maybe arguably put them second after Black Sabbath and then put Iron Maiden, something like that. But I don't think, uh, I think that's a little bit too uh, too much of an exaggeration to put this record third. Uh, I would put this record probably, uh, even on a very commercial accessible list, I would probably put this record somewhere around 12th.
0: of British Steel? Yeah. Save up your opinions for later, when we eventually uh, get into a public heated debate about that. Anyways, yeah. moving on.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: At the same time, or rather the same date, on 14th April 1980, the UK saw the release of another heavy metal album. This one was a debut by a band called Iron Maiden. And to make things really easy to remember, I guess, the album is self-titled, and it's called Iron Maiden as well. So far, this band has been active for, say, around four and a half years um so martin did iron maiden really have any notoriety as such before they got the chance to record this debut album what do you think prompted emi to give them this kind of an opportunity
1: okay so definitely they had some notoriety it wasn't it wasn't four years worth of notoriety it was more like a very exciting six to eight months of notoriety as this as this heavy metal thing Completely exploded in places like the Roundhouse with Neil Kay. And uh, and you've got, you know, Rob Loonhouse playing his, uh, playing his, you know, cardboard air guitar, that kind of thing. I, it might have been wood, actually. Uh, but heavy metal is a big deal. Sounds is loving heavy metal. There's no Kerrang! magazine yet. Um, EMI is early on to the... Um, onto the platform with uh with the um you know the metal for mothers album there's other compilations that come out early um so there's this excitement around this band uh, that is very in a in a tight time frame paul diano is is amazing this uh, this magnetic lead singer they've got this this eddie mascot doll which with the glowing eyes and smoke they're this they're, they've got these amazing songs they're super tight because through all the lineups um you know steve has you know uh knocked this thing into into military shape so mm. they've got really flashy cool scary songs they're playing them well they're they've got a great live show so yeah emi is really smart johnny on the spot they're there in the clubs looking at this and any sort of um Uh, buzz on this band is very, very underground. There's no buzz on this band, you know, anywhere outside of uh, basically London, I suppose. Um, You know, there's certainly no American buzz or anything like that. And like I say, it's not a long buzz. I think this is a buzz that is essentially, you know, a 1979 forward buzz.
2: So The album was recorded in January 1980 at the Kingway Studios in London. Now, the big story here is the lack of interest of their producer, will malone who apparently was so disinterested in the band that he just left the band to produce the albums themselves have you heard this story and what do you make of it
1: yes they do complain about that and this is this is the changing of the guard right we're into a new decade you know will malone is from a from a previous generation he's kind of like emi's guy just in there he's basically said you got to do this you know and and maidens like they're so they're so green in the studio that okay we'll go along with this um so yeah they all speak kind of disparagingly of will malone uh you know and i don't think the results of the record are that bad um it's not a great recorded album but it's not a disaster either i mean it it could have been worse you know there's a lot of new wave of british heavy metal singles and a few albums that sound sound quite horrendous um and you know and this is this is another cool thing about the new wave of british heavy metal uh it's it's picking up inspiration from the punk movement in that there are all sorts of independent independently released singles small labels sprouting up all over the place you know with cool little heavy metal uh, logos and stuff on them um so there's a lot of do it yourself attitude going on mm. and and so this really fits into that sort of thing even though they're on EMI they are a baby band and there is a do it yourself attitude they've already done the soundhouse tapes um so yeah he's in there producing And they get results that are that are not terrible. I mean, the reviews of this album didn't particularly disparage the production. If I was to characterize the production, I would say it's it's a tiny bit thin. It's a little bit bright and shrill. There's not there's not a lot of bass on it. Um, But as we know, you know, Steve Harris's problem really throughout throughout some of the years is, he he doesn't you know even even when they could do whatever they want say that's with martin birch or even with kevin shirley later on mm-hmm. uh, or steve self producing or co-producing i mean this is a band that didn't you know through the through the auspices of the boss this is a band that didn't want a lot of big, fat, bassy sound on there. He wants that clacky, articulated bass anyways. So it's almost like if if they would have had Steve's way on this, maybe we still wouldn't have gotten a heck of a lot of bass on the album. Um, But no, generally speaking, it's not a terrible production job. I agree with you on that
0: completely. It's not as bad as the band itself makes it out to be.
2: So, you know, we get nine songs on this album with Running Free being the first single. Do you think that was a nap choice?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty good choice. Um, it's not a great choice. I don't think it's that great a song. I mean, it's a you know, it, it's a catchy song. It's a hooky song. It's got that "I'm running free" chorus um, that that sticks in your head. The beat is a little bit uh, you know complicated and tribal and gallopy. It's not it's not an easy song to love from a beat point of view. You certainly can't dance to it. Not that people were going to be dancing to New Wave British Heavy Metal. Uh, it's short. It's not, it's not a straight horror story, so it's. Uh, it's got kind of like a teenage wild freedom sort of uh, feel to it as well, a little bit of an outlaw thing. Something, you know, the headbangers who are in their patch jean jackets, of course there aren't too many patches yet at this point, but there will be uh, patches and pins, jean jacket, and... Um, or leather jacket or whatever, and their sneakers. So it it's a song that really identifies with the headbanger. So so yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty good choice as a single, given what it, what is on the rest of the record, which can be a little proggy and ponderous and long and historical and and maybe a little bit you know horror themed. So yeah, it's a it's a good kind of like you know. Iron Maiden were considered a little bit of a punky metal band because of uh, Paul Diano and his, his look and his short hair and stuff. But also it comes from a song like Running Free.
0: I guess I guess it would be the strongest song the, to showcase Paul as the front fan of the band in a way.
1: Yeah, and you could have gone with Sanctuary as well. I mean, Sanctuary was a single. uh, It has a similar feel to it. It's got a little bit of a boogie-woogie thing to it as well, but it's also Mm -hmm. a little punky. So Sanctuary and Running Free feel like the two songs that are the most similar to each other to me.
0: All right. The other song that I want to talk about is, of course, Iron Maiden, which is perhaps the uh, only song to be featured at almost every concert. I find it weird, though, that uh, the other songs have largely been overlooked by the band, even, say, from the mid-'80s onwards. Uh, They rarely find a place on the set list, even at those times. Uh, What do you make of that? Have you ever had a chat with the band about not playing, say, Phantom of the Opera or Charlotte the Harlot or, I don't know, even Strange World for that matter?
1: Yeah, I mean, they they did eventually get around to... to everything or almost everything, if not everything. I mean, it's not that these songs were completely shunned, but uh, you're right. I mean, the the idea really is that, is that, you know, given even their their love for it being the first album, I mean the songs are slightly dodgier and not as great as the songwriting later on. But I mean these are these are pretty well put together songs. They're well tested songs uh, in most cases, and and they are they are good anthems. It's not like yeah, there's a lot of good material on here. It's not like a super embarrassing first album. Like for example, I think Aerosmith's first album is not great. I think Judas Priest's first album is not great. Uh, but this is a really good. Song solid first album but yeah iron maiden is the big one because you know it's it's the self-titled song it's so identifiable that way i i love the parallel as well with you know iron maiden essentially starting off a new a new metal renaissance a new metal decade at the very beginning of 1980 and they've got a song called iron maiden on the album called iron maiden and the band is called that Black Sabbath yeah. did exactly the same thing back in early 1970 with a song called Black Sabbath. You know, they're one of their big anthems, although, you know, it doesn't say Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath in it like Iron Maiden does. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's essentially they've got a song on the album that's self-titled. The band is called that. They're kicking off a decade at the very beginning of the decade. And they're and they're inventing heavy metal, essentially. And Iron Maiden is kind of reinventing heavy metal. uh, you know, in, in 1980. Um, although, you know, I always want to make the point though, Iron Maiden is doing this big thing and they're making this big splash, but I never ever will, uh, cede to the point that some, you know, deep Iron Maiden fans say that, that, that it was an amazing new kind of music that they were making. And Oh my God, like this is a reinvention of heavy metal. No, to my mind, Iron Maiden is essentially a, uh, a faster and wilder and looser version of everything Judas Priest was already doing on Sad (laughs) Wings and Sin After Sin and Staying Class and Hellbent for Leather. There's no, there's nothing new about what Iron Maiden is doing, um, other than some subtleties, like, like Eddie. Eddie's a big deal. I mean, having this mascot and having this lurid, uh, you know, um, this lurid album cover art, this comical album cover art, that was like saying, "This is exactly what's inside the package." You know, this is going to be a heavy metal album. So things like that, and then subtle things about Maiden—they're they're kind of the who-ness to their sound, mm-hmm. the the um the darkness, the the slightly um, more. Um, direct progginess than even what Judas Priest would do. And um, so there's there's and and just the cool personalities in the band, the way these parts fit together. They are a great, amazing band. It's really cool that way. But I don't I don't ever want to talk about Iron Maiden as, as being the reinvention of metal. To me, it's like Black Sabbath 1, Deep Purple in Rock, pretty much um Sad Wings of Destiny, maybe Van Halen, but. And then after this, it's Metallica with Kill Em All. Really, that's to me. Those are the big Richter blips in really taking metal upscale. Maiden, Maiden never participates in that. They make some great classic heavy metal albums, but they are not part of the reinvention of heavy metal stream.
0: Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. All right, okay. Uh, which, which is kind of. Uh... Which kind of leads me to the next question. Now, uh, again, bringing in Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest metal albums of all time, uh, Iron Maiden is placed at number 13. And the write-up on Rolling Stone features a quote that's uh, kind of attributed to you because it's part of an interview that you've conducted with Dave Murray. And the quote is uh, Murray saying, uh, or rather Murray telling you that Iron Maiden was probably one of the worst sounding albums, and we weren't happy with the production at all. But for that time, it really captured the raw energy of the band. What's weird is quotes like this uh, by Steve Harris and by Murray and even Rod Smallwood, they often make me wonder, does Iron Maiden itself not really like Iron Maiden, the album, a
1: lot? Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I... I mean, they do like it. They're fond of it. And and again, I think they agree with what I just said in, in that um, it's a really, really good first album. I mean, these songs are really quite good, um, perhaps recorded in the golden era of Martin Birch, say, Peace of Mind era. If you had re-recorded them in that era, even with Paul singing, I mean, they would basically stand shoulder to shoulder, I think, with a lot of those songs. So so the songs are good, generally. Um, and, you know, what, what Dave says there is really interesting. I mean, it really does capture the energy of the band and the enthusiasm and the chops and the tightness of the band. I mean, it's a little bit of a loose album, but, but the point is, is it does capture the energy. And as we both agreed, the production is not terrible. So, um, <clears throat> you know, with... With Dave saying it's one of the worst sounding albums, that that is a little ridiculous because there are a lot worse sounding albums. It's not that bad at all. I mean, Maiden themselves do a lot of horrible things with production later on when they should know better. Yeah. So they should actually feel a lot worse yeah. about Virtual Eleven and, uh, you know, The X Factor uh, or No Prayer than they should about Iron Maiden in 1980.
0: <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's a debate for another day.
1: <laughs> of course
2: <laughs> all right. so uh, just to kind of wrap up uh, on this one uh, Martin what did this album do for Iron Maiden if you can help us kind of understand its importance because after all it is the debut album uh, and also if you think about it that the fact remains that only two members of this recording lineup remain with the band today uh, Steve Harris and Dave Murray and of course ron smallwood as i would guess
1: yeah so what it did for the band i mean it is a really good heavy metal or a new wave of british heavy metal document by a baby band and it's the most exciting baby band the one that there's the most sort of hubbub about uh, you know saxon was well liked but they they have kind of like an like a path their look kind of they kind of looked like they were a little older and they're coming into it with a little bit of a history they already had a debut album in 79 but there's a lot of excitement around saxon there's a lot of excitement around motorhead uh and there's a lot of excitement around Def leopard but iron maiden are almost the band that it, that sounds most like other new wave of british heavy metal bands that are even more green and younger and have smaller deals and maybe are more independent so they're more they're more like sounding exactly like what you want a new wave of british heavy metal band to sound like they are kind of coming out of nowhere Uh, you know forget forget that long pass back to 1974 they really do even come out of nowhere in the uk but certainly for americans they come out of nowhere um so you've got eddie everybody's excited about eddie it's an import first before it comes out in the states and there's a bit of a track listing difference so there's a big big buzz around Iron Maid. they they come over and they start touring but you know i mean they do another album with paul killers they're still not a big band but they're still just this cool underground band that the really cool kids like really up until you know a, a few months after number of the beast comes out when they when they really kind of break it wide open and there they are now a band that, that a lot more Americans and a lot more of the world knows about at that point. But no, it's, it's just a good early heavy metal document. I mean, I always make the argument as well that it's not even the best of these early new wave British heavy metal. I think the angel, Witch album is an even better album, uh, but they went the opposite direction. Their career just sunk and iron maidens just grew because you know, these, these guys are, are five, guys who 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 under the auspices of rod smallwood everything was moving in the right direction they had the one big blip of course where they had this shocking thing where they had to replace their lead singer uh, that's yeah. a hard thing to do but but it worked um that, that all worked out well um so no they were they were just off to the races with a good quality album and then also let's not forget that they did that cool punk thing and New Wave of heavy metal thing of putting out picture sleeve singles all the time, Some, you know, with with cool B-sides on them and with, uh, and with songs that aren't on the album. So they kept the excitement level up um, by, um, by having these singles all along to keep uh, people's interest up. And then they hit you super hard with an even better album, Killers, in 1981.
0: And with that, we conclude an analysis as such are paying tribute or just talking about largely these two lovely albums that both turned 40 in this week. So, Martin, since we have some more time with you, we'd like to just quickly do a few uh, first reaction kind of questions. Are uh, you up for that? Uh, we'll try.
1: I'm not that,
0: I'm not that good thinking <laughs> on my feet, but we'll give it a shot. So most of these are opinions, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's hear the fan in you. Okay. And we'll uh, take turns in answering this martin i'll start you off first between these two albums which one did you hear first and do you remember your first reaction
1: okay hear first um i would say it probably would have had to be british steel because that would have been coming into canada as a domestic and i did get iron maiden as an import um pretty early so i had that long before i ever had a domestic copy i had my import copy so i would say it was probably british steel and uh Super uh, ticked off at Priest for British Steel and super in love with the Iron Maiden album.
2: Peter? I heard this decades later than they came out. And um, this is purely just look on looking at the artwork because I'd already heard like uh, Painkiller and stuff like that from Judas Priest. So I, when I saw the cover and stuff like that, I had a very similar reaction to Martin. But of course, decades later where I was like, wait, this is the same band? Like, what's up with, like, you know, the hooky choruses and stuff like that? Because I'd already seen uh, heavier, heard heavier stuff by them. And uh, Iron Maiden, I think I heard like far later. And for me, again, because I'd heard their later music, I was kind of surprised that this is what they started out as. And then, wow, they had a different singer to begin with. So, yeah, that was my first reaction.
0: I'll answer this one too. For me, actually, it was Iron Maiden because uh, that's the band. Iron Maiden's the band that kind of got me into heavy metal. And ever since then, for some weird-ass reason, I have never uh, enjoyed Judas Priest as much as Maiden did. Maybe it's just because you always remember your firsts. So yeah, I, uh, that's not to say that I don't enjoy Priest now, but uh, yeah, definitely Iron Maiden was the first album between the two that I'd heard. And it was Absolutely on par with all uh, other Iron Maiden music that I'd heard of before. Anyways, next question Peter, take this one first. Which one between the two have you heard more, and why is that? Which one do you keep turning back to more?
2: British feel. (laughs) Okay, why is that? Uh, Just compared to the two. I mean, there is something like there are the tracks like breaking the law metal gods and stuff like that that you keep going back to and stuff like that so yeah just just for the uh, catchiness of the tracks
1: okay martin what about you uh british steel as well because it's the happier of the two it's the less creepy of the two i don't think you can listen to the iron maiden album in the summer uh, i don't think you could jog to the iron maiden album um so yeah i think the priest album and it's just a little easier on the ears the production's better it's just a little more straightforward so yeah you get certain albums that uh, over time just kind of get darker and grimmer and grimmer and weirder and 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 just more obscure and iron maiden is a little bit like that for me yet british steel is just sort of uh you know evergreen i mean it was it was a bunch of well-written songs and i think it stands the test of time uh as that hmm. well i'll answer
0: that and i'm gonna say i made in once again only because yeah made in fanatic and at the end of the day uh that album has a lot of layers to keep digging into and to uh, it was one of the albums that i tried to learn basically while learning my instruments so yeah I guess because of that final question Martin this one's uh start this one off which one would you consider the better, better
1: album between the two and why I think that would have to be British Steel I mean it is just so well constructed um it is you know Tom's production people people put him down for his production as as do I certainly that you know I I think uh, I went back and played Screaming and uh Defenders and it's horrendous they're they're both horrendous sounding really um But what he's doing here is a sort of Martin Birch production where he's got everything nice and tight in the middle. It's got this uh, straight in your face sort of sound. There's there's not a lot of bass at the bottom end. Um, So, yeah, I I think it's produced quite quite well uh it's it's maybe one of his best productions i think the songs are just airtight well written the sequencing is good a lot of anthems a lot of big hits on it um and i i bet the i bet you know if you if you really poked uh poke the iron maiden guys with a sharp stick they would probably admit british steel is a better album too
2: I definitely <laughs> I'm waiting know. for you to go over this image.
1: <laughs> no, I, I. Okay, so
0: so 15 years back, I would have blindly answered this as Iron Maiden, and I would have stuck to my guns and thrown a hissy fit if uh, if nobody would have accepted that as the answer. But today, having heard more and having and being able to appreciate the music more, I will concede that yes, British Steel is the better album of the two. What about you, Peter? As much as it pained me to say that, yes, it is true. British Steel is the
2: better album between the two. Yeah, and I have to agree. I mean, I kind of will end up repeating the points I said for uh, both the albums. I mean, I'm actually holding uh, the 30-year anniversary edition that they released, the remaster. And, you know, watching that DVD and stuff like that, the whole fact. I mean, yeah, there's, there's something about that album that so many years later still kind of resonates with you so there's definitely a reason why i listen to it so much
0: (laughs) phew that was long and that was fun thank you so much martin for your time for joining us thank you guys i hope you guys enjoy uh, i hope you enjoyed talking with
1: us about these albums yeah it was a blast absolutely awesome amazing So how are you keeping yourself busy at this time? I'm going to be very, very busy in the next few days because tomorrow I receive the first of my Rush book trilogy, Anthem, uh, Rush in the 70s. That's a big, thick, hardcover. You know, lots of words and just some photo sections. So those physically exist tomorrow. And then I've got a bunch of back orders for my Merciful Fate book um, that I receive copies uh, probably Monday. And I also get a new Saxon book. Uh, on Monday. Uh, Denim and leather, Saxon's first 10 years. So it's actually just on the 80s in Saxon. So I'm going to be pretty busy. And right now I'm in the middle of writing, past the middle actually, of writing the third of the Iron Maiden trilogy. So we've got uh what is it where eagles dare iron maiden in the 80s we've got holy smoke iron maiden in the 90s and now it's going to be empire in the clouds iron maiden in the 2000s and i'm just uh, starting to write the final frontier chapter right now of that one so you know my my um mailing and shipping chains all stay, op- stay open. The print shops are open, so I'm going to keep doing this. You know, whether whether I'm going to be able to sell many copies of these when when everybody's uh, feeling pretty pretty much broke. We're probably in a depression, even though nobody's using that term. We're definitely past recession. Um, we're gonna we're gonna see how everything sort of pans out in the next bunch of months. But uh, obviously, we're in quite an economic uh, you know shutdown slash slowdown right now but um it, it, at least for what i'm actually doing i'm doing all the stuff i used to do anyways
0: all right i hope i hope we're all able to do whatever we enjoy doing in the times to come martin you want to tell us uh, where people can listen to your podcast and how to find you on twitter etc if they feel like talking to you more
1: Yeah, so I so I am on Twitter. I think it's uh, at Popoff Martin. Um, I'm definitely on Facebook. I've got a busy page for the podcast, which is called History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff. That's on Spotify, iTunes, everywhere you get podcasts, Podbay, Megaphone. Um, And uh, my site is martinpopoff.com. That's where you can go to order any of my books. I ship them right out of the office. I sign them here, uh, ship them out uh, all over the world. Um, and yeah, that's all staying open. My mailing house is open. My I have access to all my stock, so that's my main. That's my main business is essentially being a mail order guy of myself, um, <laughs> and that's it. Uh, we've got a show called the the Contrarians. Um, that's that's online uh, where we look at kind of like uh, one of the least thought to be favorite albums it's a favorite album of of our guys and we're going to start a new contrarian show which we're going to call the worst album where we're going to be talking about the worst album by a band but the main place to to see all my stuff is uh, martinpopoff.com all righty and
0: of course if you guys want to talk anything metal you can hit us up at HornSupport.com.
2: i'm at asmani on twitter and i'm trend crusher till next time horns up horns up guys